Well, something that I've seen work for myself is that I, I continuously fail my way to success. The successes of my life have not been built on, on no failures. I am much more preferred to look at my life now as an experiment. And when something isn't working, I design an experiment to gather information around change. And that's the way I encourage people to approach therapy. It's an experiment. And together we'll design experiments that create new experiences of self. And we'll get more information. There are no failures. There are just experiments. Welcome to part three of Between Two Therapists, a special series in this podcast where I interview psychotherapists Frank Hewen and Peter Stathakos about their decades of experience in the field of mental health and well-being. In this episode, we cover a lot of ground yet again. The three of us talk about when seeking therapy might be beneficial for you, how to talk about therapy to friends and family, and how long it might take to see sustainable change. Uh, there are some pretty tactical pieces that we cover in this episode that I think you'll find interesting. I also chose Frank's explanation about seeing life as an experiment because I, I just love this concept. When we reframe life as a series of experiments in which we don't really have control over the outcomes, we realize that life isn't about hanging on and retaining as much control as you can. It's about letting go of that control and focusing rather on the choices that we make. Do we lean into the difficult conversation or do we shy away? Do we stand up for ourselves or do we let someone else push us over? You know, sometimes we can get in a, stuck in a rut or patterns or habits that we can't see unless someone can provide us with an objective yet caring perspective to our challenges. And seeking therapy isn't weakness. In fact, it shows a willingness or, or better yet, courage on your part to face the challenges that stand in your way. So all that said, without further ado, here's part three of Between Two Therapists. I hope you enjoy it. Um, but last time we talked a little bit about, you know, what brought you into the world of psychotherapy mm -hmm. and, um, you know, the work that you do at a, at a more high level. This part of the conversation, I'd love to get a little bit deeper into mm -hmm. if you were looking for psychotherapy, you know, how would you go about that process? what would psychotherapy help with in the first place? When do you know you need somebody to talk to? Um, so a little bit more tactical with these conversations and uh, we can take it anywhere we want to go. This mm -hmm. is free-flowing, open conversation. Uh, but uh, yeah, excited to dig into that a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And yeah, any, any initial thoughts as we get started on this? You know, part sure, two? I have one. Yeah. Around when, you, when do you need to know that you need psychotherapy. Right. Right? Yeah. Um, so I'll use my own experience. Many, many, many years ago when I was in my mid-20s, um, I yeah. had a low-level chronic dissatisfaction with my life, mm -hmm. with my relationship with myself, with others in the world. And many people in my life at that time, good intention, kind of said, yeah, but you know what? You're doing really well. Right? You're successful in school, you're in your master's program, you're doing this, you're doing that, you have friends. And all of that was true. But I still had this dissatisfaction with my experience of myself. Mm. I went to see a, a therapist in Toronto, and after the end of the first session, I said to him, so what do you think? Do I need to be here? And he said, yes, I think we can do some work. 
and I felt this huge sense of relief. Mm. Because while my world around me was saying, okay, you're coping and you're functioning, that's enough. Mm. I knew that it wasn't. Right? Like so, coping and surviving, you're saying, I was surviving. Yes. Like other signs of when to seek someone out is uh, you're trying to solve something on your own mm-hmm. and repeated failure. Because the failure isn't necessarily you, it's just you need more strategies or support in order to make the changes you want. Another situation would be, I can't talk about this with my friends or the people close to me. Therefore, that means you need to seek someone else to speak to. A therapist is a good person for that. Mm. Another one is when you go to your friends and they're just like, I don't know, man. Let's do another round. Mm. Uh, So like the futility in the social network and actually uh, knowing what to do either with one's emotions or the problem at hand, or you know when you hear it, the advice that you cannot do it, mm-hmm. or it's just flat out stupid. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. that, that's... Well intended. Be, well intended, but really stupid. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, you know, you know, you know uh, I kind of picture this, you see it on TV often, like the scenario where a woman discovers her husband cheated, goes to her friends, and they say, leave the guy. Mm-hmm. And she's like, well, we have two, three kids, you know, you know, he did this one thing and, you know, the friends are saying, you know, you got to leave him. He's awful. You'll never trust him again. Right. Um, and she's reluctant or feels trapped where, you know, I should, my friends are telling me this. There's some truth to how am I going to trust him? I don't have an answer for that. Therefore, do I tear up a family? Mm-hmm. It's a real short sighted answer to dealing with a some emotional challenge. Mm. Uh, the end result may be that the person leaves, but um, there's social pressure that's causing that at times. Mm-hmm. Or there isn't enough uh, depth in the exploration of, is it really not salvageable? What can I actually do in this situation? Because mm-hmm. people don't like to see people suffer, and that's the deficiency of friends. Therapists, we can handle, or I guess me and him, we can handle people suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, I've observed clergy. You know, a lot of people go to priests or ministers or, you know, some sort of, sort of spiritual director. They also have an intolerance for suffering. Mm. You know, they'll try and placate it or say, "Just go do this," or you know, confess that. Or um, I don't know what other kind of advice could they say? It'll be fine in heaven. Right. Right. Um, you know, to kind of like dismiss what's happening in the present. Yeah. Um, so like if all of those situations are uh, signs where someone more desperately needs therapy. Right. Or should seek someone out. And it sounds like there's varying degrees of that too, right? Yes. Where you have that, you know, acute, immediate pain. I, I, I can't fix this. This is ruining my life to more of the benign what you were describing Frank of just general dissatisfaction with your life right um so when when does that dissatisfaction cross over into yeah I could I could use somebody to talk to right I think that's a really individual um kind of response it would be great if there was a cookie cutter uh my response is 
if you have a chronic sense of dissatisfaction with your life, then you deserve to have a better experience of yourself, of others, and of the world. And so that's the time to seek therapy. Many people would say to me, well, you know what? Lots of people live just kind of survival life, and that's okay. And I'm not going to argue with them about that. Those are choices that we make. And those choices have a lot of influences, from what we think about mental health, to what we think about therapy, to what we believe is possible for ourselves. Mm. And so I don't think there's a cookie-cutter approach to it. I would say, though, that if what I'm saying to you resonates, then you're ready. Mm. And the key word that Frank said was chronic. Yes. Mm. Uh, if we were discussing a physical ailment, you would have been at the doctor years ago. Right, right. Um, why can't we treat our emotions um, or our goals, like life goals, in the same way? Or if it's not chronic, we could even look at it periodic. You know, if, if you know, let's say it's seasonal, or every time this happens, you observe trends in your life. Mm. Why not treat it to interrupt it to right. change the trajectory of those things? Mm. You know, if it's something that's just momentary. Like I'm, uh, you know, I'm afraid to have this conversation with my boss or something, mm -hmm. or I'm afraid to give a presentation at work. You know, that might be like a one-off therapy session or no therapy at all, because mm -hmm. it's momentary, it's short. There's a clear thing that your task that you need to achieve with great, with some difficulty. Mm -hmm. But you know, if your job is to give presentations, then you might need therapy or change careers. There was a study a number of years ago in Ontario of emergency room visits, and the results of the study were that over 30% of the visits to emergency rooms were for mental health issues. Mm. Wow. Yeah. How, can you repeat the percentage? That's over 30% wow. of the visits were for mental health issues. Wow. So this kind of... Anxiety, panic, depression, addiction, yeah. uh, domestic violence, abuse... Family abuse. Overdose. Overdose. Right. Yeah, well, I guess that's... Part of addiction. Yeah, yeah. part of addiction. Um, yeah. So that's a, that's a stunning kind of statistic. So when we're talking about when is the time for people to seek therapy, when we look at a statistic like that, that mental health issues actually drive people to the emergency rooms of our hospitals, then we know that mental health is a significant, pervasive, and chronic, unresolved issue in our society. For sure. And that's not even, uh, that's probably the more acute problems, Absolutely. right? Absolutely, yes. Not, not counting in um, Absolutely. The, 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 the lower uh, The non-crisis yeah. kind of things, yeah. yeah. Um, so kind of piggybacks, like, where should someone go? Yes. Like the emergency room is not the ideal place no. right. um, to get the assistance one needs. A lot of yeah. uh, other times you go to a family doctor and get a prescription. Um, therapy is another option that's meant to be permanent and lasting. Mm -hmm. So when you're seeking a therapist, what you want is someone who's capable of taking, not to create a temporary solution, you know, who would function as a type of pill or release, mm -hmm. but as uh, someone that's actually going to be, you know, surgically going through uh, your psyche to... Um, you know, remove the things that you don't need, enhance the areas of growth that you need to thrive. Mm. The way a gardener cuts a plant, 
So when you're seeking this, you, you're, I would recommend looking for a therapist that has experience with very complicated uh, matters or situations. Because mm-hmm. the odds are, if you're listening to this, that your problems are not um, in the most extreme categories, even though it might feel that way. You'd want a, a therapist who's worked with stuff that's way more complicated than your subject matter. Um, so you could, one, trust the therapist, but also the therapist would know what to, what to do in response to something that's easily within their scope of, of practice and skills. Mm-hmm. So therapy is not about rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Right. It's about redirecting the course of the ship over time yeah. so that it's sustainable. Yeah, I yeah. love that. Uh, comparing, you know, so a good strategy sometimes to compare a couple of therapists. Mm. Not necessarily on the phone. A lot of people want to do like a phone conversation with me before booking an appointment. And uh, I counter offer, do a session instead with all the people that you're going to, that uh, you're trying to check out. You're not trying to check out who is a good phone conversationalist. Mm-hmm. You want to find out who's going to do the best therapy on you. Imagine if I was trying to pick a surgeon for heart surgery. Am I going to call them mm. to try and build trust? Can I talk to this guy? Can I trust this guy to cut my chest open? Like, I wouldn't do that. Mm. Like, it wouldn't make any sense. Right. Uh, I'd want to know about their actual surgeries. How many people die on the operating table? Mm. How many people survive? How many have invented, you know, new surgical techniques? Right. Uh, which hospital are they affiliated with? Right. You know, I'd be. <clears throat> what are the modalities, the types of therapy that they do? And also, and I think I kind of forget this because it's the water I swim in. Um, are they licensed? Do they belong to a governing body that has a code of ethics? Yeah. And that's the bare minimum for psychotherapy. But so, you want to at least start there. So before we go deeper into, you know, finding the right psychotherapist, if that is something that you're interested in doing. Mm-hmm. I just want to go back to, for those listening who have an inkling that mm-hmm. maybe this is something I'd like to try, you know, mm-hmm. at least maybe do a couple of sessions. Um, there's a lot of s- stigma around therapy, right? Like seeking yes. therapy means weakness. And most of us in the world never go to therapy, right? Like when somebody tells us, a friend, family member, a colleague that they've been to therapy, there's almost a bit of like, that kind of sharp intake of breath, right? Gasp! Oh, I didn't know it was it. that bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was that bad, yeah. Um, so I didn't realize I did a such jo- terrible job raising you. Exactly. That you needed to go see a therapist. For sure. 100%, yeah, especially family members. We had to have an education fund, but we don't have a therapy fund. Right. Oh. <laughs> so that's, I think, in a way, our society that we live in today is a little bit behind in the idea of what therapy is and maybe yes. it comes with the baggage of what they think it actually is. Mm-hmm. So as maybe somebody looking at therapy, um, how do you, you know, how would you rationalize it to yourself to say it's okay? And how would you talk to about it with other people? Okay. So just um, a couple of quick responses. Coming to one's own assistance is always okay. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to say that again. Coming to one's own assistance is always okay. The decision to seek help from a professional is coming to your own assistance. Empowering yourself 
to improve and change what isn't working. Mm -hmm. And that is always okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I love that. Yeah. And so there, that's, I think, a foundational piece yeah. to really uh, embrace. And even if you can only embrace it as a cognitive idea, but your feelings don't match it, that's okay. Mm. It's okay to have that discomfort, that dissonance. We all have some dissonance between our, our understandings and our feelings and our historical impressions of things. But to be a leader in our own life is to come to our own assistance. And that is always okay. Mm. In fact, it's better than okay. It's always good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's... Um I would say going to therapy is, a, is an empowering experience. You know, it's like saying, I don't want to be drowning anymore, or flapping in the water, I'm going to start swimming a particular direction. Uh, you know, a lot of people often will try and search stuff online, as an example, before they even consider seeing a professional. They come to their own aid, sometimes in gradual ways, mm -hmm. uh, before they reach the point of saying, okay, I should double check what I'm doing with someone who knows this material or the, this alone me googling isn't sufficient but these are steps in the progress of coming to one's own aid and when they're talking about it with family I would talk about it as a form of uh, this type of dual reality of because both are true that uh, one they're taking steps to do something for themselves mm which is a wonderful thing and everyone supports. And the other component is um, showing the vulnerability of their, of their um, I don't know what the right word is, humility mm. and recognizing the truth of what's actually happening. You know, to say, hey, I, I've been depressed since this breakup uh, with this person. I felt lonely, and it's been harder for me to do some of the things that I normally did. Uh, but I've taken some steps to help address that by going to therapy. Mm. You know, the alternative is saying, I just stayed in bed for the last three months. Or never saying it and everyone knowing, but no one ever calling you on it. Right. With the exception of saying, why can't he get out of bed, or why can't she get out of bed? Mm -hmm. You know, why can't she just get over it? or he get over it. So like to do nothing is going to bring more shaming later mm. than to take the, the step to seek out assistance. Yeah. And, and what still, still remains with you taking that initiative and, you know, taking ownership, I think is the Frank, Frank the word that you used. Um, is the when you do like when you do tell somebody you know there is that awkward moment and so you kind of have to sit with it and I, and I like the way that you framed it frank around you know it's always okay to take care of yourself yes. and it's a very strong internal belief that this is something that i need and i'm okay with what baggage or opinions come from other people and even the ones that come from myself, right. <clears throat> that have been internalized from my family of origin, my culture, my religion, my society, to recognize that those are not me. Mm. Those are things that I've been taught to believe. Mm. And it's okay 
to wonder if they're true. Yeah. And to believe that they're not. Yeah. Is, is there any other, anything else you would recommend to folks who are really just, it's hard to take that first step to go into therapy. Um, and they, again, going back to the weakness or failure, like they've stepped into the room of therapy because they failed at everything they've tried. Yes. Um, is there, are there any ways that that can be reframed or any, anything that you've seen work for your clients, for yourselves? Well, something that I've seen work for myself is that I, I continuously fail my way to success. Right. The successes of my life have not been built on, on no failures. Yeah. I am much more preferred to look at my life now as an experiment. And when something isn't working, I design an experiment to gather information around change. And that's the way I encourage people to approach therapy. It's an experiment. And together we'll design experiments that create new experiences of self. Yeah. And we'll get more information. There are no failures. There are just experiments. Nice. Peter, would you add anything else to that? Uh, I, I love Frank's presentation of uh, the process. Uh, I, uh, while he was speaking, what, the word that I was thinking of was the word learning. Mm -hmm. You know, I learned this about myself or uh, about this other thing. Um, some of the temptation in, is to kind of perceive that um, you know, in a standardized world or assembly line mentality, you know, if something may have worked for someone else but doesn't work for me. Um, therapy can be the same standardized product when it's at the lower quality level levels. Mm. Like someone could go to therapy and it not work. That's more of a reflection of the therapist that you were with than uh, you. Um, so if it's not working, it's it's not you. Mm. It's the therapist, and then the responsibility falls on you to seek out someone that's a better fit, mm -hmm. that may have more skills. Um, Just the one of the sorry. As it's, go ahead. No, I, I pick was, up on that. Yeah, yeah. Go for one it. One of the things that uh, um, I say uh, clearly to my clients in the first session is that. Um, if after two, three sessions, one or both of us decides that this is not the right fit, mm. then they don't need to take care of my ego. I do that outside of my therapy sessions, and together we will seek to find someone who is a good fit. Right. Yeah. Yeah, ideally the therapist is simultaneously choosing the client, yes. as well as the client choosing the therapist. Where the therapist can say, I can work with this person, I can attune uh, myself to who they are and develop a treatment plan according to them, mm -hmm. like a custom product. But this exists at the upper quality levels of therapy. Mm -hmm. So like a if you're wanting to do cognitive behavioral therapy, which that is a standard product. Yeah, that's a standard <laughs> product which reflects low quality in the therapist and you're gonna get those kind of results. It'll be temporary at best. Um, so it's not the therapy, mm. or the therapist rather. If you're seeking out that kind of therapy, um, I would be reflecting it back on myself. Why do I want to do that method? Mm -hmm. 
um, as opposed to something that might be more effective long term. Mm-hmm. Doesn't the the individual receiving therapy have an onus on them to actually follow through on the experiments, the learning experiences that they then go outside of the the, the room to do? Right. So that's a that's a great question. I love that question, and I think the answer is um, a qualified yes. Mm. So, uh, you know, I presented to my clients that if they implement the experiments in between sessions, yeah. their therapy will be more effective and cheaper and faster. Right. If they struggle to implement the experiments, and I mean, we don't just design experiments, but that's part of what we do. If they struggle to implement the experiments or the, um, the change of habits that are being recommended, then that's information for us. It's not failure. Mm. And it's very, very important to never set the client up for shame-based failure. To just never do that. They've had enough of that. And as a therapist, I never want to be involved in that. Mm. I simply want to be involved in supporting the gathering of information. If a client, and I, again, as Peter was saying, you know, if the, if the therapy's not working, you know, sometimes we'll hear phrases like, the client is resistant. Right? Well, maybe the client's resistant because he has a really good reason to be resistant because you're not doing a good job with the therapy. That's what I say to myself. And it's not that I'm not doing a good job. It's that there's something else going on here. I need to pay attention here. If the client isn't implementing the uh, agreed-upon things in between sessions, that's information. Right. Let's take that information and use that to support the client. Yeah. Right? So that, Never to judge or shame. Right. So there's... To, to, to take that, yeah. it sounds like, you know, if there is resistance... Um, mm. Uh, then there's something deeper going through. It's, it's Absolutely. information, really. Absolutely. Let's yeah. bring that resistance into the room and allow it the voice that it hasn't had for years and years and years. Right. right? Let's make it a part of the relationship. Yeah. Because once we can make it a part of the relationship, then we can renegotiate how it serves. Right. Yeah. Resistance is really important in life. Yeah. Well, the, the resistance is also informing... Just needs to serve the right things. Yeah. What I love about the resistance is that the, the person's giving a gateway into their own inner world. Yes. Mm. The push and pull of, do I want to do this? Do I not want to do this? I really like this thing I don't want to do. Um, mm-hmm. What do I, I unconsciously believe I have to give up in order to get this improvement? Right. So yeah. many things. Well, that and the... You know, we use the word resistance, but in, you know that sounds very relationally presented. But if we go from a, a self perspective, the, the word would be fear. Mm-hmm. And we talked about that last. Yeah, time I'm afraid to do this because what's being promised on the other side, I may not have that much familiarity with, or experience it. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know how good it feels to to not have this problem. Right. Because I've had this largely my whole life. Yeah. Or I was raised in a way where this feeling wasn't there or a level of stability wasn't there. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I want stability that much. I like a, the life I have. What, you know, what's behind door number three? I don't know. Right. Yeah. Therapist, you're telling me this is better. How do I know? Mm-hmm. So it's a... With resistance, I, I find it um, a lot of time, a lot of fun. Yes. Yeah. And a really important pathway. 
to establishing the relationship of trust. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, with with something like changing your behaviors and changing mm-hmm. your mindset, it takes time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it takes effort on the part of the therapist and also the individual. Uh, if if you were looking at getting some psychotherapy support, um, how long does it typically take? Like how long? Mm. And I know each problem, each I shouldn't say problem, each challenge is is different for each individual because of family history and how they were raised and what's happened in between. Um, but typically, how long does you do you see kind of the first signs of change happening, and then actual sustainable change happening with mm. with your clients? First sign of change happening is when they contact me. Mm-hmm. That's the first sign, and I, I really believe that. I love that very yeah. deeply, and it's my job to amplify that change and to amplify amplify that belief in a better self and a better possibility that they have by contacting me. And why, why is that, that contact moment so important? Because they've made a decision to come to their own assistance and to ask for help. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah. 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 In terms of when do we see the first signs of sus- sustainability, that is uh, quite variable from challenge to challenge. And from has, there's just so many variables. The, the age of the person, the uh, complexity, the... Uh, are there comorbid things going on? So other mental health issues going on at the same time. So if I'm treating someone with addiction who also suffers from uh, severe generalized anxiety, then that's going to take a different kind of shape and treatment plan than if I'm seeing someone with addiction who doesn't have you know, severe chronic generalized anxiety but does have episodic anxiety or episodic depression or situational depression or unresolved grief, which in our culture is epidemic. Uh, I'm going to stop talking now because I could just go on and on on this one. <laughs> uh, but that gives us a good overview. Yeah, like, the, you know, the complexities of right. what... Um, yeah. And when we yeah. say sustainable, so I said I'd stop and now I'm not. <laughs> it was okay, a joke! Frank. It was it's a joke! Okay. It's okay, Frank. We're used to this. Right okay, good. This All, right. Yeah, yeah, so. All right. When we say sustainable, I think it's important to understand that sustainable is very different than perfection. Okay. Right? Yeah, tell me about that. So sustainable is... So here's um, the rock, perfectly poised at the top of the hill. The rock begins to shift down the hill towards the fire raging at the bottom. When we intervene right here to reset the rock, it takes a small amount of energy. Mm. When the rock goes to here, it takes a lot more energy to reset it to balance. Mm -hmm. When the rock is already here, it's likely a good idea to let your friends and family get out of the way. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. the task of resetting that rock feels Herculean, right? So when I talk about sustainability in terms of um, change of behavior and emotional regulation and relationship satisfaction, what, what I want to talk about is the, the speed and effort it takes to reset the rock when balance is disturbed. Mm-hmm. Sustainability is not having a perfect life. Sustainability is ne- it's not about never having a relapse into an old behavior, an old um, uh, emotional pattern or an old relationship pattern. Mm. It's about how quickly we notice it and how effectively we implement the tools that we have discovered in therapy 
to reset mm. and return to balance. That's great. Yeah, I love that that imagery. And the, the earlier that you can catch it too, the, the rock tilting over, Absolutely. The, the, the less um, energy required to push it back right. to where it, where I'll, it is. I'll give you a simple example, a humbling simple example. I'm driving here today, and I found myself having a conversation with a person in my mind who obviously is not in my car, right? <laughs> and building a case against them. Mm. And very quickly, I mean, the conversation didn't go on very long. I thought, hmm, what am I getting by having this conversation, creating this emotional state, driving this conversation in my mind? Right. What's really going on here? Right. right. What am I feeling? Yeah. And yeah. Since I think we've all had those moments where we take What, you too? Yeah, no, for sure. <laughs> More often than I care to admit. Me too. Where, where you know... <laughs> Uh, the the voice in your your mind says, yes. you know, oh, you, you could have done that, or you right. should have done this, or yes. and you, you could follow that path, you could take that door that they opened, oh, yeah. but you have a choice, and, and maybe if you have the tools, you can shut off that conversation faster. Exactly, yeah. and I think that's that's a really key thing is about having the tools that support um, on a, a new emotional state and a new relationship with the self. Yeah. Right. So it's not about um, it's not about getting into a bar fight with the conversation and getting angry with ourselves for having the conversation, judging ourselves for ha- having the con- here I go again being such a stupid what whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. It's not about that at all because that simply um, creates a negative merge with the self that continues the pattern. Mm. It's about interrupting the pattern with a sense of loving kindness and skill. Mm. That, to me, is what sustainability is about. Yeah. And the skill has to be driven, like you need a therapist who they themselves yes. is no fraud and has these skills themselves. Right. It's um, like seeing a, a, your, your general you know, uh, practitioner, you know, you go, and they're giving you advice, but they're obese. Right. <laughs> you know, they're giving you health advice. They're like, right. Yeah, Probably it's don't terrible want to, take to see advice. a dietitian who's overweight. <laughs> right. right, exactly. Ironically, you also see a ton of them that are anorexic. Yes. Mm. Um, so the therapist can't be a fraud, and that's, you know, asking questions about the therapist, their lives, mm-hmm. their experiences. I find a lot of people with uh, addictions want to ask me, do you have these, have you had this exact addiction? <laughs> like, no, oh. no, mine was worse. <laughs> No, I haven't had that. I got uh, you. I don't have direct experience with that right. thing. But what the person needs to understand is I have direct experience with the thing that's underneath it. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, you know, the loneliness or the feeling of a being sense of out of control. Yeah. yeah. sense of shame. A sense of not wanting to feel something right now. Mm. I don't need to know anything at all about cocaine or alcohol or... Game Whatever, yeah, yeah. I need to know the thing that drives that. Right. And right. a lot of, let's say, addiction therapists totally don't understand the thing that drives it, but they can say, hey, I, yeah, I used to be a, a coke addict. Now, now I'm not. I'm, um, I'm a workaholic. I just don't admit it. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, what? Nothing. I'm just smiling because I think it's a great response. Yeah. Well, it's like yeah. it's it's Thanks. as if your um, yeah, your doctor right right <laughs> can't see it in video or, or on audio, <laughs> but they just did an exploding fist oh. thing. So, uh, 
for our audio listeners. There you go. Um, yeah, I, I guess the equivalent is, you know, your doctor, again, using that analogy because it's quite mm. appropriate, is, you know, they, they give you cream to treat a rash, mm. but they don't actually treat what's, what's causing the rash in the first place. Right. And, and getting deeper to that level, Peter, that you're describing is what you're actually looking for your, your um, therapist to help you out with. Right. It's funny, though, because just sort of interrupt. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people show up at a doctor's office and they, do they want the symptom to go away. Right. Despite knowing that there's something, uh, you know, there's disharmony in the body. You know, is there, like, the, think of, like, the pill prescription, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I'm depressed, give me pills. Okay, well, you can take for the next 40 years. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, I want to treat the symptom of depression, not the thing that's causing it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I find that shocking, uh, whether you're talking about, like, you know, skin irritation or emotional disturbance. Sorry, continue. Yeah, no, that's great. Uh, it's, it's, uh, that was a really good um, co- further color to that. I'm wondering, so I was, and this could be, you know, kind of not fully correct, but when I was seeking therapy or when I was looking at, um, you know, what it would actually be like, it was described to me as if having that adult mature parent that you never had in your life to help you guide you through your problems. And, um, and as I went through therapy, I actually realized, you know, this does feel like having that parent, that mom or dad that was able to really address, you know, um, some of the challenges and really understand it a little bit better. Um, how true is that? You know, it, right. hey, do, do you think that's an apt way to describe psychotherapy? Uh, and B, you know, maybe we can go into that topic of how much influence our childhood actually has right. on, on who we are today. It's a great, great, great topic. And um, so the first thing that I, that I want to speak to is to everyone who is a parent who is listening. Mm-hmm. We were once children. And our parents got up every day and did the absolute best that they can. When I'm looking with a client or in my own life, at family of origin, what I'm looking at and listening deeply to is the impact and never judging the intent. Oftentimes, that is a real struggle for clients initially because our developmental default is to try to protect those who were our caregivers. Mm -hmm. And so we approach looking at our family of origin, our early caregivers, our early culture of religion and schools, not from, um, a, not from a sense of intent, but from an honest look at impact. Because when we can look at the impact, then we can begin to understand uh, the, the other possibilities. What else is possible here? And to heal the unintended wounds that all of us carry. I'm a parent, and I have been a wonderful parent, and I have been an imperfect parent. And some of my imperfections have impacted my children. And my job as a parent, I believe, is to support them in becoming individual from me, not protecting me from the impacts I've had on their lives. 
but to come to a place where we lovingly tell each other the truth about that. So that was like a long answer. Yeah, <laughs> There's no, a very complex great. question, and I love the question. There's just yeah. there's so much there. Yeah. yeah. So tying it back to your question, mm-hmm. if a lot of these wounds are, uh, regardless of intention, because of imperfections of humans, we In make generation. actions. Sorry. We take actions that uh, don't always match our intentions as parents. Mm-hmm. Right. Which leaves... All of us, because all of us are children of someone, uh, with some scars, some bruises. And whether we may not always know the origins of them when we first come to therapy, a part of us, because some of these wounds are so old, this type of projection comes that you were describing, where the therapist can become uh, a parental figure. Because the therapist is addressing the the actions of uh, one's parents and meeting the needs that the younger self did not meet. Mm. And that uh, the person in the therapy room is also simultaneously learning how to meet through this relational exchange uh, so that they develop more capacities to heal the parts of themselves that still need healing. Because some of these wounds are going to be recurring. Mm. Um, But it changes over time. Um, Like a good therapist should be able to identify the transference, things that are happening from client to therapist, but also um, it can go the other direction. You know, therapist can say, I see you as my child. Mm. That's like fully embracing this because they're not actually your child. Mm-hmm. You know, but you can hear a lot of therapists kind of talk that way. Or if you go into a social service agency or not for profit, right? You know, I was at a conference one time, and this woman was talking about um, how this group that she runs—these are her girls, they're her daughters. Right. She spoke about them as if they were biological children. She sees them all the time, and she's been running this same group for four years, and it's the same uh, daughters that are attending this group, you know, and she was sitting next to me and she was giving this talk about how this was a wonderful thing. She sits back down and, uh, you know, she kind of turns to me afterward, makes a little joke and, uh, I decided this was an excellent opportunity. Uh, I, <laughs> I don't know if it I turned out being an excellent opportunity, but you know where this is going. Oh, this is going. Yeah, for sure. Right. Tell- said, <laughs> So, what happened next? <laughs> so, when are your daughters going to leave the home? <laughs> right. Uh, when are they going to be women? Yeah. Uh, I got a dirty look, and she turned. I would have loved to have followed up just to see did my one-liner make a difference? Um, not necessarily for her. Well, I guess for her, because you, you can't. Well, you, made, you definitely made a point. Sure. Yeah, I made a point. But, yeah. I thought, you know, in a room full of like 60 therapists. Yeah, it was important to me. Someone should, I thought she was going to be publicly called out, but I kind of looked around the room and I was like, oh shit, there's too many of you that think the exact same thing that she does. Yeah. Um, being caught up in these... Um, relationships. Yeah, confused relationships within the therapeutic setting. Yeah. So like if the client, like you said, is coming 
with these childhood wounds, and they're going to find an authority figure, like a parental figure, someone knowledgeable, someone that's guiding them and nurturing and loving them. Obviously, the therapist should be providing this, but not to be confused that you're doing so to liberate the person, to enhance the person, mm. and to see them thrive. Not necessarily in your room, Oops, sorry. but outside the room, right? That's the real testament of one's life. Yeah. And actually, probably the role of a real parent, too. Is Absolutely. What your job yes. is to create, uh, develop children that then can leave the nest and yes. be self-sustaining and confident and all the things that, yeah. yeah so. And children who are not necessarily my dream for them, but who individuate and become their own dream for themselves. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that, um, you know, to pick up on what Peter was talking about, um, when I'm with my clients, I need to be 100% with them. And then when they're not with me, I need to be 0% with them. Mm-hmm. Unless I'm treatment planning. If I find myself thinking about a client or a session, I stop and ask myself what's going on here. Mm-hmm. Right. I need to be 100% present to them when they're with me, and when I'm treatment planning, but not at no other time, mm-hmm. in order to be an optimally effective therapist. Right. Right. And that's a, that's a gatekeeping in my own professional life. That's yeah. important. Yeah. So like if a, you know, if a listener wanted to parlay that onto how to evaluate a therapist, they can say, how, you know, do you take this stuff home with you? Right. You know, how do you... Psychologically, well, maybe a client, no one's asked me, how do you psychologically organize yourself? Right, right. Uh, you know, I've had other therapists ask me that question. But uh, it's important from a client, you know, what do you do with all the stuff that you hear? Mm-hmm. Where does it go? How do you take care of yourself? Yeah, yeah. you know, you're having you having nightmares every life? night? Are you, you know, right. messaging clients in between sessions to see, mm-hmm. um, how did it go? <laughs> You know, because I don't think it went well. I'm worried for you. Um, that kind of, uh, I don't know, underlying panic. Yes, like, counter transfers. Yeah, or a type of uh, generalized anxiety being played out on t- with one's clients. Yeah. But it also sounds like kind of basic professionalism too, right? Yeah. It's when you're with... Uh, like a physiotherapist, you're there for an hour. They'll work on your body, but they're not thinking about, you know, oh, uh, Peter is really tight on his hips today. I'll right. make sure to, you know, right. kind of think about that on my off time. Like, right. no, it's you're working with a professional. Yeah, counselor. they wrote it down, and they're like, when they come back, right. so how's your hip? Right, yeah, it's tight. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So yeah, I think some of those questions are really interesting, and um, you know, I think later on in the interview, I'd love to hear more about the specific questions that you might want to give last year your potential therapist um. thanks for listening to part three of between two therapists we'll be back again next wednesday with another episode and we'll dig deeper into some of the topics that we covered today and i hope you're enjoying it in the meantime hope you take care and have a great day i need to feel love.